AJT readers, this is Josh Levitsky. I'm a transplant hepatologist at Northwestern. I'd like to welcome you to January's edition of AJT Highlights. Today, I am joined as always by Roz Manon. Today, we have a guest presenter, Rob Fairchild from Cleveland Clinic. And uh, we're very excited to have him on board because, and the reason we asked him is that this was the editor's choice articles were very basic science heavy and who better than Rob to uh, comment on these papers. So I'd like to welcome uh, both of you to the podcast. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Rob, for uh, helping us out because I could think of no one any better. Do you want to tell everybody what we're going to talk about today, Josh, or should yeah. we just get started? Okay. Yeah, let's all, so as, as usual, I'll, let me go over kind of our agenda today. So we actually have four papers to review. The first one is actually a review paper uh, by Ochando and colleagues uh, called Trained Immunity and Organ Transplantation. And Roz will be just discussing this. It's a review paper, but to just go over the key essential reasons the review was put together and, and what it was all about. And then we will dive into two uh, basic science papers that Rob will discuss. The first one is from uh, Mohib and colleagues. The title is Antigen-Dependent Interactions Between Regulatory B-Cells and T-Cells at the TB Border Inhibit Subsequent T-Cell Interaction with DCs. And um, then the next one will be uh, from La Muraglia and colleagues entitled Circulating T-Follicular Helper Cells are a Biomarker of Humoral Alloreactivity and Predict Donor-Specific Antibody Formation After Transplantation. And then uh, we'll turn it back over to Raz to discuss the final paper, which has an accompanying editorial. And this is from Russell and colleagues, uh, Improving Medication Adherence and Outcomes in Adult Kidney Transplant Patients Using a Personal Systems Approach system change, results of the magic randomized clinical trial. Okay, so why don't we start off, uh, Roz, with the first review article, if you could uh, talk about that. Sure, so one of the um, editor's picks this month is a mini review by um, Ochanda and colleagues from uh, all across the world, uh, entitled Train Immunity and Organ Transplant. And I think this is an interesting paper because it highlights the many mechanisms of innate immunity. And I think I typically think of innate immunity as a stimulator or a cross-talker to allograft immune, to alloimmunity. But um, the highlight of this review is really on the primary function of specific members of the innate immune response, that is mononuclear cells or macrophages. And recall that years ago, we talked about M1 as being sort of pro-inflammatory, sort of the usual activation signals, and, and M2 is the repair types. And I think in kidney disease, for example, in acute kidney injury, there's a lot of interest in is M1 or M2 mediating injury in acute kidney injury. The concept here is that trained immunity is the ability of innate immune cell, cells, in this case macrophages, to switch and maintain their functionality, but also their transcriptional expression and their metabolic programming after they engage a specific pattern recognition molecule. Remember that in the danger signals that we think about, um, or DAMPs that, that they respond to these pattern recognition receptors. And this is, I guess, sort of the, maybe the bioequivalent of what we think of as memory 
uh, an alloimmunity so that, you know, these cells get sort of a secondary stimulus and become, you know, even more active. And they provide some prior data where mononuclear cells are important both in mice and man. And then they review the major signaling pathways, be it uh, HMGB1 signaling through TLR4 or NOD2 through NF-kappa-B, exodized LDL, and then the uh, NLRP3 activation in the inflammasome. So why is this worth reading as a, if you're a clinician, why should you read it? And if you're a basic scientist, you may already know this, but it's a great review. I think that I've always sort of thought of as, as innate immunity, not in a, even though I've authored a couple of papers where I think about innate immunity as being a primary participant in the, uh, in the response to um, an organ graft, this uh, paper really kind of highlights the independence of these pathways that these cells can uh, independently become uh, injurious to the kidney. So it's more of a direct mechanism rather than a collaborative uh, mechanism of graft injury. And I think it's important that we understand these innate uh, pathways. These are not really the direct targets of immunosuppression. And so long-term graft failure is a big part of what we look at both in kidney, heart, and lung. And um, not the liver, that's always mm -hmm. the best organ, I know, Josh. But um, <laughs> in terms of the management, um, I think understanding these pathways is really going to be critical to, in fact, uh, better long-term graft survival. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting. And, and in fact, there's actually some more data now uh, in liver where the really bad ischemia, reperfusion, injury can stimulate rejection and, and graft complications. And it seems like the, the co whole concept here is that this is sort of a memory thing, that this is not just perioperative. That's kind of what I learned um, from reading this paper. I don't know, Rob, if you had any other comments about this paper? No, I didn't. I think it's well-written and, and very clear and very um, trendy or uh, in line with, with what we're trying to think about now. So yeah, And, and it's yeah. a nice collaborative effort by a bunch of investigators who have been very involved in, in macrophage mononuclear cell uh, activation as a critical mechanism of allograft uh, injury. You wonder when we're at some point going to have immunosuppression approaches that target innate mechanisms. Um, I know there was some interest somewhere along the way, I think in CTOD for looking at anti-TNF agents and, uh, you know, targeting those, those early pathways before the adaptive response. Yeah, it's, it, this is this very interesting. Well, great. So, um, Rob, I think we'll move on to your first paper on um, the, the regulatory B cells and interactions with dendritic cells. Okay, so this is a paper from David Rothstein's lab at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, the Starzl Transplant Institute, and Kanishka Mohib is the first author. And this is focused on one of the primary uh, areas of interest of that lab, and that has to do with regulatory B cells. So regulatory B cells are a particular population of B cells that have been shown to modulate pathogenic immune responses in autoimmune disease, cancer, and 
alloimmunity in transplant patients. And, and this group has a, a long history of looking at this in transplantation. One of the problems with this entire field is trying to better identify the cells look at where they go during their modulation of the immune response. And one thing that's complete, been completely unclear is uh, how they may function to attenuate or undermine or modulate immune responses. So one of the things that is going to be clear and uh, key in this paper is that one of their characteristics is that they express IL-10, and this appears to be critical for their function. As far as uh, their uh, paucity in, in a transplant recipient, they constitute, Bregs constitute about 1% of B cells. So these are fairly rare cells, and they're not easy to work with. So there are two problems that are going to be addressed in this study. The first is a simple question, do Bregs alters uh, effector CD8 or memory CD8 T cell functions, which had not been clear despite all the work that's being done. And then the second uh, is gonna focus on something I alluded to. How do they actually downregulate immune responses? Many mechanisms have been proposed either direct through direct or indirect mechanisms, and as you'll see, this paper actually gets uh, gets at that. So they use two different uh, animal models to look at this. These are mouse models, and they're transgenic mice. And the first one is a tamoxifen-inducible um, B cell in which IL-10 is deleted upon tamoxifen feeding of, of the mice. So they look at uh, the impact of uh, donor reactive when my, these mice are immunized with allogeneic spleen cells. They look at the impact on the donor reactive CD4 and uh, CD8 T cell responses to these, uh, <laughs> excuse me, to this alloimmunization in mice that do not have the deletion of IL-10 in the B cells versus those that do. And when they delete the IL-10, these alloreactive responses go way up. And the other way they look at this is that we know that um, if you immunize mice with an anti-TIM1 antibody, you can provoke uh, tolerance to an antigen, and this is dependent on Treg. And so what they show is that um, when you give this anti-TIM1 antibody, again, you can get long-term long survival of allogeneic, uh, complete MHC mismatch allogeneic islets in wild-type mice, but not in mice in which you've deleted the IL-10 from the B cells. So that takes care of the first question that these uh, Bregs are modulating both CD4 and CD8 mediated responses. Now, the second one's a lot harder, but they come up with a clever strategy. They use an IL-10 GFP reporter mouse and using the antibodies that uh, is phenotypically characteristic for to identify Bregs, they can identify the IL-10 producing uh, Bregs. So what they do here is they first prime these mice, these transgenic reporter mice, 
with a haptin, and then a couple days later, they separate out the GFP positive and the GFP negative mice. So in other words, the IL-10 producing B cells and the non-IL-10 producing B cells, and then they mix them with a, a TCR, T-cell receptor transgenic CD8 T-cells, plus antigen-pulsed uh, antigen-presenting cells. These are bone marrow-derived dendritic cells, and they put them into all three cellular components they put into naive hosts, and they imaged this using two-photon uh, imaging and intravital microscopy. And so simply what they see, and if you look at the paper, they have very fine images that are very clear, is that the GFP-positive B cells that are these Bregs with antigen specificity interact with antigen-specific CD4 and CD8 T cells. And these T cells following interaction with these IL-10 producing B regulatory cells subsequently make fewer contents, contacts, I'm sorry, not contacts, contacts with antigen-presenting dendritic cells. And furthermore, those that do interact with the with the dendritic cells, the ones that have interacted with the IL-10 producing B regulatory cells spend less time interacting with the dendritic cells than antigen-specific T cells that had not interacted with the B regulatory cells. So what this suggests, and it's, it's very strong evidence, that B uh, regulatory cells downregulate the number and duration of T cells interactions with dendritic cells during priming to any antigen. In this, they use a model haptin, but presumably the same thing uh, would occur in, in a transplant. And so the implications are, are very important in that they finally are getting to a more in-depth uh, mechanistic um, function for these B regulatory cells. In part, that not only, only provides more insight that you can use to investigate further what's going on, but it also serves as kind of a validation in that now we're beginning to know what these cells do. Therapeutically, there are some targets now, including IL-10, that might be enhanced to further increase Breg function. Um, there are some molecules that could do the same. So overall, this is a very nice paper, very clear with very strong data for one of the few times showing what these B regulatory cells do. And um, Dr. Rothstein has shown they're very important in modulating responses to eyelid antigens, and now we have a mechanism of that. So I'll stop there on for this. So Rob, is this a contact? I mean, I'm looking at the picture, so you know, I can't tell, but is this require physical contact between these cells, or, or is it just a soluble 
the soluble mediator is, is IL-2. No, it does. So. The, the B regulatory cells and the T cells are actually contacting each other. And I wasn't going to get into this, but the way they do it is, um, is an old trick that immunologists did uh, 40 or 50 years ago where they used haptin coupled to proteins so that the B cell is specific for the haptin and the T cells are specific for the protein. The protein. Okay. So you're getting link recognition for, through the B cell uptaking the haptinated protein and then presenting the peptide to the T cell. But but their their figures show um, quite nicely contact between the two partners. Rob, I was wondering just very quickly if you knew of from a clinical perspective if there are groups looking at doing sort of the same thing with Tregs, with Bregs, like expanding them and using them therapeutically to modulate the immune system? Or is, or is it just too early for anyone to be doing that right now? No, I think the European One study is trying to work with these cells. I think David has uh, studies going on in non-human primates, not quite in uh, clinical transplant patients yet. Cool. Maybe a maybe a potpourri of B regs and T regs together. Um, that might be the possibly. case. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Let's move on to your second paper, the Mar Maraglia paper on follicular T helper cells. Yes. So this is a paper from uh, Raul Bedell's uh, laboratory at Emory University. And what he is looking at is a population of CD4 T cells called T follicular helper cells. These, of course, are CD4 positive, but they have a unique phenotype in that they express the chemokine receptor CXCR5, and they're also positive for the costimulatory molecule ICOS. They're ICOS positive, and then they also express PD1. And what these cells do is they provide help for B cells to produce antibody, and importantly what they do in addition is that they drive uh, immunoglobulin class switching during antibody responses. For example, switching the B cells from producing antibody, IgM antigen-specific antibody, to antigen-specific IgG antibody, which can then mutate during the germinal center reaction and, and gain specificity as well. So the presence of T follicular helper cells in the peripheral blood of transplant patients has been seen, and it is associated with um, DSA production, with levels of DSA in the serum. But here they propose a, a kind of an extension question, and that is, can T follicular helper cells be detected in the peripheral blood of allograft recipients before you detect the donor-specific antibody? In other words, if you could detect this, would this be a portent that there is donor-specific antibody that is coming down the line? 
And so the model they use is a mouse model. It's basic science. Um, they just simply take a complete MHC mismatch skin graft and put it on B6. And after 10 days or some window around 10 days, um, they start looking in the peripheral blood of these recipients and in the graft draining lymph nodes, and they test for detection of these of these T follicular helper cells using some of the markers that I had mentioned a little earlier. And the point is that, yes, they can be detected in the uh, peripheral blood, and you can actually isolate them. They do by sorting of the graft-draining lymph nodes and of the peripheral blood, and they have an in vitro culture system uh, where they add antigen-specific B cells, and the TFH that they sort out and isolate and add to the cultures can help those uh, B cells to make antibodies. So these these are indeed T follicular helper cells. So then, once they have this established, they go to the next step, and that's to answer the question. When do they detect the T follicular helper cells in this transplant model? So they're first detectable in the peripheral blood by day seven. They peak in numbers at day 10, and then they start to decline and get to lower levels by day 21. So the kinetics of the appearance of these T follicular helper cells correlate very well with germinal center formation in the graft-draining lymph nodes. Now, the most important thing is that even though they begin to see these T follicular helper cells at day seven, they don't see the serum DSA that is the product of these germinal centers until day 14. So about a week before they see serum DSA, donor-specific antibody, they see these follicular helper cells in the peripheral blood. Importantly, if they treat at the time of transplant the recipients with either a calcineurin inhibitor, which is tacrolimus, or costimulatory blockade, which is directed at CD28, this does not inhibit the, the DSA production and its appearance in, in the serum. However, if they delay the co-stimulatory blockade and begin it at day seven, and this is when you first start seeing the T follicular helper cells, but not the DSA, they inhibit the production, the subsequent production of the DSA. So the implication is in a transplant patient that you may be able to use the detection of circulating T follicular helper cells is a biomarker that would predict the generation of DSA in about five to seven days. And if you saw that very early in the absence of DNA, DSA, you might be able to treat them with some reagents such as a co-stimulation blockade and inhibit the production or attenuate the titers of the DSA. Now, 
this needs to be looked at in other transplant models besides a skin graft model. It also needs to be looked at very, very carefully and closely in the clinic to see if you see a different um, separation between the appearance of these cells and, um, and the production or the appearance of serum DSA. One of the most important things besides that, the use as a biomarker, is that you might be able to, based on these results, be able to use the detection of the TFH as an effective time to quickly administer co-stimulatory blockade and possibly knock down the production of DSX. So I'll stop there and answer any questions or, or issues you may have. So I guess, Rob, this is maybe, I guess, one of the purported ways that, that bilatacept or the co-stimulatory blockade agent that we have used in the clinic may mitigate the, the prolonged development. I mean, it's a different model and it's much more complicated and it's, and it's probably the timing is different. But is that potentially what they're trying to explain, that, that this interaction and dis dysfunction over the T-flicker helper cell is what's mitigating the development of DSA? That, that is correct, Roz. Remember now, uh, about, I think, three or four years ago, Anita Chong first published a paper using a heart transplant model in mice that if you gave late CTLA-4, just like they're giving here, that you could knock down the production of, of DSA in the mice. So the mechanism of this is, is not well understood at all and of course they're doing a similar thing here just adding the detection of the TFH in the peripheral blood but probably the mechanism is is the same here yeah. that a late yeah so I wonder that doesn't really jibe with how we use it clinically but again we're not you know we use it you know sort of de novo same for the Dacrolimus um, panels where it looks like there was a reduction in DSA, if I'm reading, or the, the T follicular helper cells were down, and sort of delay of onset of, of DSA too. Interesting. Right. All right. It's always more complicated in the two-legged mm. animal model, so I will yeah. be quiet. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Rob. Um, and so speaking of DSA, I know that that's predominant in, peop in uh, particularly kidney recipients who are non-adherent dovetails into our last uh, last paper. Well, so. that was a great transition, Josh. <laughs> and um, yes, yeah. indeed, long-term graph survival is, is really- Am I right? Yes, <laughs> by, um, you've been listening. So um, long-term graph survival is really affected by, by medication non-adherence, we're growing to learn, and, and the development of de novo DSA or, or you know, return of, of memory DSA over long, late periods of time. And so um, there have been at least a couple of trials, one in kids and I think one in non-kidney transplant recipients that have looked at adhe adherence strategies. And again, I am not a population biologist and, and, and quali quanti qualitative science I'm not really great at, but this was a fascinating randomized controlled trial by Cynthia Russell and colleagues from multiple institutions, including her institution, the University of Missouri, Kansas City, utilizing initially two transplant centers in the Midwest, studying a different strategy of non-adherence. So most of the time when we do clinical adherence education in the clinic, it's usually what we call intention and motivation, where 
you try to create educational reasons to, for patients, and then you ask them to tell you what you said. Um, and that has some effect, but this new strategy is more of a quality improvement strategy called system change. And if you look at table one, um, it's kind of a quality improvement map plan where you have a plan, then you interact with the plan, you check the plan, and then you act. And so what they did is they first initially in a group of transplant patients at the University of Missouri and at Memphis looked at individuals. They were given those MEMS caps, electronic caps, and they identified patients that were about were under 85% um, adherent. Now I don't. I reread this paper a couple of times, and I'm not sure when post transplant this existed. But needless to say, they screened patients for about three months, excluded anyone that was good at taking their medicines, and then we're left with the reprobates that seem like me, where I don't take my uh, pills in the morning on time. But um, needless to say, they created a randomized trial. So they had about 90 patients, about 60% were African-American and 60% were male. So guys apparently don't like to take medicines too. Um, and they looked at patients on these two interventions, a standard kind of intention, motivation, educational intervention, where they checked in with a research assistant every month versus this uh, system change management model where it's very patient-centered, it looks at patients' routines, it looks at environment and leads to, and, and it kind of evaluates the, very, the four environments that a patient has, both their own and then with their community. And what they found is that in, in the initial six months of treatment, whether they got randomized to one strategy or the other, they had a statistically significant improvement in um, medication adherence and those on this more novel system change methodology than the individuals that were on sort of standard intervention. And then they had a six month period where they left everyone alone and followed up. And what they found is that individuals really continued to differ in their lack of adherence or, or in their quality of adherence. Figure one shows you the number of patients that were screened uh, and the patient uh, pool was very similar between the two groups. But I think it's really the figure um, two, which shows you the adherence over time in the first six months and the second six months. Now, while it's, and so this is great, and they also saw a trend towards better creatinines at six months in those on the system change, and also, interestingly, a rate, higher rate of infection, although the study was not powered to find those sort of clinical outcomes. It was really to look at medication adherence specifically. There's some interesting things, and first and foremost, it's great that this intervention has the ability to create a significant difference than the standard, you know, me yelling at you, take your pills, take your pills. But on the other hand, I was a little sad to see that the slope of the line of individuals maintaining adherence was negative for both groups. And so it looks over time that as you walk away from whatever intervention you're doing, you continue to get worse. And they don't really mention that in the paper. They, they really focus on the positive beneficial effects. I think it's remarkable when you think that this was done at a couple of centers, their DSMB weighed in and they added more centers that this worked across no matter who the research assistant was, it was typically a nurse, but those individuals were trained up. The study had a very high retention rate. Very few patients lost a follow-up. It's not clear if that was because they got a small gift card for every time they had their session or whether it was because they developed personal relationships. I think the beneficial effects in renal function and 
the not so beneficial effects of infection, and it's hard to tell whether that was due to overimmunosuppression or not, are really positive. Again, they use these, uh, you know, the MEMS caps. Again, uh, there was a lot of face, uh, you know, sort of face, face-to-face time, which may not be adaptable to a program such as ours, where there's way too many interactions and, and too few people. And also the study is really biased to people that want to change. Again, they didn't, they picked people that one, were not as well adherent as they could be, and then two, were willing to be in an interventional study. Beth Foster has a very nice uh, accompanying editorial um, about this paper where she talks about where do we go from here, identifying the Take It study and the Maestro study, which was, uh, again, uh, an intervention study in non-kidney transplant patients both of which identify positive beneficial effects using more um, comprehensive qualitative methods in terms of improving uh, patient adherence. And so we've now got a third study that, that looks at adherence that has identified a potential strategy. And is this enough for us? Can, and, and she questions that, is it enough for the community to take these results and start to implement them to create more positive outcomes? And can't, you know, I, I, and I think, some of the naysayers will say, well, you know, you haven't really shown me clinical improvements. You haven't shown me any impact on kidney function or DSA or graft loss or graft failure or rejection rates. And I think it would be very difficult to prove that necessarily because the patient population would have to be quite large. So the question is, are we, you know, ready to go ahead and and implement a more structured um, intervention in terms of of patient adherence. So, you know, nice job, kind of a different um, strategy than's been used previously. And um, I think one uh, for our readership worth taking a look at. Yeah, I I thought this was really interesting. The one thing I thought was sort of unique was that they, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they randomized to two different approaches rather than randomizing to just standard of care. No, um, and they and their their sort of standard of care was fairly, you know, inter- interventional, I guess. Yeah, that's, yeah, right? that's I mean, was, you know, meeting every month and talking. Yeah. And and, and uh, you know, but sadly if you look at figure 2, even with those constant contacts, patients started coming down to about 60% adherence. Now granted it it kind of never got much worse than that, but it started off a little bit higher. And I think we all know that as, as a condition mitigates itself over time, that patients become less adherent over time. And again, you know, they don't develop immediate rejection signs if they skip a pill or two here and there. So I, I think a word of caution is that if you may, the first effect has some benefit. You, you know, you start out really doing well in the 90s and then you go down to the 80s and, and, you know, where is the threshold where you get into problems in terms of activation of, of T cell function or activation of, um, you, know, you know, B cells and development of DSA. But clearly these two groups remain, they start off the same and remain significantly separated over time, even in the absence of the intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just, I was wondering, maybe they would have seen even a, a bigger impact if it was against kind of what, what we do in regular practice rather than kind of another intervention. And may, maybe you would have, maybe you would have seen some of those, could have seen some of those endpoints you were talking about that are hard to reach. Yeah. But very interesting. Well, great. So I think that is a wrap. Those were really uh, excellent um, reviews by 
both of you. And, um, and I think, uh, I think we're going to end the podcast and I hope everybody has a great holiday and new year. And actually, by the time you hear this, you will have already <laughs> probably already happened because this will come out in early January. So I hope you had a great holiday and new year and we will see you in February. Thanks, Rob, for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 